Welcome to week four, days one, two, and three of our Romans study. Daniel was born in 1840 in Massachusetts. When he was a teenager, he moved to Chicago. He got a job as a cashier in the Wells Fargo Bank. The Civil War broke out and Daniel enlisted in the 72nd Illinois Infantry. And the day before he went to war, he married his sweetheart, Abby. It wasn't long before Abby got notice that Daniel had been badly wounded in the Battle of Vicksburg. He had been taken prisoner by the Confederates and was in a POW hospital with serious injuries. As a matter of fact, he lost one of his limbs, his right arm. Daniel was in the hospital recovering. He was bored. He found a New Testament and began reading. As he read God's word, his heart was moved and he felt a need to accept Christ as his savior, but he just was not ready. So Daniel fell asleep. Not too long after that, an orderly woke him up and said that there was another POW that was near death and wanted someone to pray with him. So he asked, Daniel, would you pray with him? And Daniel said, no, I can't do that. You'll have to find someone else. And the orderly said, but I thought you were a Christian because he had seen Daniel reading God's word. We'll come back to Daniel a little bit later, but I have to tell you about the sweetness of Jesus. Wednesday... Uh, morning after the last time we recorded, I had set aside to begin this lecture preparation. And that morning I had my sweet time with Jesus and was reading in the Old Testament that day in Job 38 and 40 and came across a couple of questions that God asked Job. Who is this that questions my wisdom? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? I went on about my morning routine and went into the office and looked at what is my assignment? It was week four, days one through three, Romans 9 through 11. Tim Keller calls these three chapters in Romans three complex, difficult chapters. Why? Well, you ran across it in day one, the great theological debate that draws denominational lines. On page 110 and 111 of our book, our author gives us the chance to give our opinion and to ask any questions that we might have. It's the only part in my entire book that you can see every margin is written in. I have questions. If everyone's a done deal, what is praying for others, evangelizing, family and friends, and even strangers? If election is true, why doesn't God choose everyone? If election is true, is it fair for God to elect some and not others? How does God choose? Is God arbitrary? Would that be grace or would that be luck? And there's more. Our author gives us tulip and then the five premises or articles behind the two main different stances. I thought, what could I add to this? And I decided I'll add scripture. I'll give the scripture background behind Tulip and the Five Articles. So I began Wednesday and Thursday pouring through scripture, and by the end of the day on Thursday, I had about 50 scriptures and had read two books, one by Piper and one by Keller, and yet I still had questions. No definitive answer. It was confusing, so what do I do when I'm confused or perplexed or feel like I need more information? I go to what I know to be true about God. So that's what I wanted to do. I decided, all right, on Friday, I'm going to start with what do I know about God's heart, especially as it pertains to sinners and salvation. And, and look at Jesus. Let's look at Jesus' heart because he's 
God in the flesh. What can I look at their hearts and see to be true? So I go to bed. I'm happy thinking about the scriptures that I'm going to add the next day. I wake up, do my morning routine, and with the goal of heading into the office to begin writing at 10. At 9.56, I get a text from one of you that says, you're leaving something on my porch. I go to my porch. There's a beautiful note and a book. This book, Gentle and Lowly, with the tagline, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And I turn, I look at the table of context, and the very first sentence in the introduction is, this is a book about the heart of Christ. I did not start writing that day as planned. I spent Friday, Saturday, and Sunday pouring over the heart of Jesus, my gentle and lowly Savior. Blessed beyond words, the sweetness of Jesus right there to a little teacher sitting at a desk in Geneva, Illinois. The sweetness of Jesus. The church staff actually got this book the next week as a gift, and Sarah, the kind young lady who makes sure all of this is inputted that you're seeing across the bottom of the screen, when she saw this in my notes, she said, my mom just gave me that book. I'm really looking forward to reading it. I'll be sharing just two thoughts from it today. All right, let's jump in. Again, our author gives us Tulip and the five premises. I want to go straight to scripture, and let's look first at everyone, all scriptures, which this is the Arminianism view. Now, is this just Paul talking in Romans? Romans 3, 29 and 30 tells us that God is the one God of Jews and Gentiles, and that covers everybody. Romans eleven thirty two says, for God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so he could have mercy on everyone. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, Paul continues on beyond just Romans. In other letters, we hear here in 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 4, God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth, for there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. Well, is this just a New Testament thing? Let's look in Psalm 67, verse 2. May your ways be known throughout the earth, your saving power among people everywhere. Isaiah 45.22, let all the world look to me for salvation, for I am God, there is no other. Isaiah 55.1 is the messianic prophecy that Jesus later quotes, inviting everyone that is thirsty to come. What about other New Testament writers? 1 John 2.2, 2, he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. What about Jesus? Any word from him? John 7, 37 and 38, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. In John 12, 32, Jesus said, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. Thus, we're left with man's choice, the free will of man. So let's start again in Romans, the book we're studying. Romans 2, verses 4. Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn 
and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. What does Jesus have to say? Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. Revelation 2.21, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Revelation 3.20, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. And then at the end of Revelation, Revelation 22.17, the spirit and the bride say, come, let anyone who hears this say, come, let anyone who is thirsty Come, let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Let's shift gears now and look at some verses on election or some, also known as Calvinism. What does Paul say in Romans? Romans 8, 29. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Move to Romans 9. Let's pick up in verse 11. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. Verse 14, are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I'll show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. In verse 18, so you see, God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others, so they refuse to listen. Move forward to Romans 11, verse 7. So this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God they are looking for so earnestly, and few have, the ones God has chosen. But the hearts of the rest were hardened. Well, was it just Paul in Romans? No, here's Paul in the letter to the Corinthians church, 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26. Remember... Dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those that are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Did you notice the insight on how and why God chooses? Let's keep going in Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ Jesus to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. First Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power for the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14. We are always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy 
and through your belief in the truth. He called you to salvation when we told you the good news. Now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.9, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. It's not just Paul's writings. Let's look at James, James 2, 5. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? And Peter, he teaches in 1 Peter 1, Begin with verse 2. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and His Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you've obeyed Him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Luke says in Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and thanked the Lord for his message. And all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. Acts 16, verse 14, this is regarding Lydia as she listened to the message. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. Does Jesus have anything to say about this? Matthew twenty-two fourteen, for many are called, but few are chosen. John six thirty-seven. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. John six verse forty-four, for no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me, and at the last day I will raise them up. Jesus repeats this in John six sixty-five. And then from Revelation 17, 14, and his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. So there are some verses for us there in the New Testament, Old Testament, Paul, other writers, Jesus himself and his words. Do you have the answer? Do you understand? I wish I could see you and you could come and teach if you do. I do not. I still have questions. Again, when God's word is unclear, I go to what I know to be true about God, specifically in this case, God's heart and Jesus' heart. Since honestly, that's what's in question here. Did you hear some of my questions I had written down? Does God not want everyone to be saved? If I believe in election, then how do I reconcile that God doesn't choose all when he absolutely could if he wanted to? Stop. What do I know about God's heart from God's word? God's heart. How does God describe himself? We have looked at this passage before in Exodus 34, 5, and 6. And the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, Moses. And he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. There are echoes of God's words that we find here in Exodus 34. They're in Lamentations, Numbers, Nehemiah, Psalms, five, at least five different Psalms, Isaiah, Joel, Jonah, Nahum. God is filled with unfailing love because God is love. And we know that from 1 John 4, 8 and 19. God's love is not just words, it's actions. He proves his love. John 3, 16 is very familiar. Back up and go forward from that. Let's start in verse 14. The Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. 
He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. Do you hear God's heart? Romans 5.8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. What is God's heart towards the ones that are not his children, the wicked? Let's look at Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Do you think that I like to see wicked people die, says the sovereign Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. Verse 11 from Ezekiel 33. As surely as I live, says the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn, turn from your wickedness. O people of Israel, why should you die? God's heart is ready to forgive. Listen to Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God, for he will forgive generously. We see this generous forgiving heart in the New Testament, in the parable that Jesus tells of the prodigal son and how the father lavishes his extravagant love on both of his sons. God's heart is just and righteous towards his chosen people and all people. Look at Isaiah 1 verse 27. Because the Lord is just and righteous, the repentant people of Jerusalem will be redeemed. But all sinners will be completely destroyed for they refuse to come to the Lord. We see God's patient heart, wanting everyone to repent, no one to be destroyed in the New Testament. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. In Romans 9, 22 and 23, you read that this week. We can learn even more about God's heart by looking at Jesus because God's heart and Jesus' heart are one. Jesus is God. Their hearts are one. John 1, 1, 14 and 18 tells us that the word was God and Jesus has revealed God to us. In John 10, 30, Jesus says, the Father and I are one. In John 14, 6 through 9, Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus does nothing without the Father, that's in John 5, 19. And Jesus speaks nothing without the Father, that's in John 12, 49 and 50. So what do we know about Jesus' heart from Scripture? Let's start at the same place we did with God, Jesus' description of himself. Charles Spurgeon points out that in the four gospel, that's 89 chapters of our Bible, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his heart. It's Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you'll find rest for your souls. Humility pervades Jesus' attitude, his actions, his very life. We read about that in Philippians 2. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. 
We can see his heart in his stated mission in Luke 19.10. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. In Mark 2.17, he says, I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. We see his inclusive heart in John 7, 37 and 38. We already read that. We see Jesus is not alone in his joy and his celebration in salvation in his redemption of every single one sinner at a time. The context here is Jesus is telling the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. This is in Luke 15, verses 7 and 10. In the same way, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous in heaven straight away. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when every, even one sinner repents. Of course, this is not an all-inclusive list of the heart of Jesus. And again, I recommend to you the book, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Some conclusions here from our author. She gives us her conclusion on page 108 and calls herself a Calminian, says, God chooses us, we choose God. John Piper in Does God Desire All to be Saved? This is his summary. God is constrained by his passion for the display of the fullness of his glory. Therefore, I affirm with John 3.16 and 1 Timothy 2.4 that God loved the world with a real and sincere compassion that desires the salvation of all men. Yet, I also affirm that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world those whom he will save from sin. Tim Keller's summary People who choose God do so strictly because God has opened their hearts. People who fail to do so strictly because they close their hearts. Only God is responsible for our salvation. Only we are responsible for our condemnation. As I balance my own views based on scripture, I am brought back to Job 38 and Job 40. God says, who is this that questions my wisdom? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? Romans 11, we read this week, verse 33. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. I think of in the Old Testament in Isaiah 55. We studied this in the fall, if you were with us then. Verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Wait a minute. Look at the context of Isaiah 55. It is not talking about the providence of God at all, not on his election at all. Back up to verse 6. Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God for he will forgive generously. And then we get to verse 8. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Ortland talks of this in Gentle and Lowly. He says, It is a statement not of the surprise of God's mysterious providence, but of the surprise of God's compassionate heart. What is God saying? He's telling us that we cannot view His expressions of His mercy with our old eyes. Our very view of God must change. 
There's only one other place in the Bible that uses this exact phrase, as high as the heavens are above the earth. It's in Psalm 103 when David prays. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. God's ways and thoughts are not our ways and thoughts. His are thoughts of love and ways of compassion that would blow our minds if we could comprehend. Calvin says on Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God is infinitely compassionate and infinitely ready to forgive so that it ought to be ascribed exclusively to our unbelief if we do not obtain pardon from him. Which makes him sound like an Armenian. Well, Lord Jesus, so what, now what? Two thoughts, regardless of where you land on the debate. First, Jesus invites all. I am to invite all. Perhaps one of your questions you wrote down might have sounded similar to if people's eternity is already a done deal, what's the point of praying, evangelizing missions? Jesus invites all. I am to invite all. We heard Jesus' heart and his plea to, for all to come in the Gospels. And we read it again at the end of Scripture, the last chapter of the last book, Revelation twenty-two seventeen. We already read that. You and I, we have been commissioned in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them. We have the ministry of reconciliation. We are Christ ambassadors. As we point people to God through a relationship with Jesus, the only way, that's day two of this week. And we have beautiful feet, that's day three. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Jesus invites all. I am to invite all. No distinctions. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 tells us we preach that Christ was crucified to both Jews and Gentiles. That covers everyone. But some of you might say, yeah, but I'm not a preacher, not my job. I'll leave that to others. Well, that's just not biblical. The very way we live, our lives, our actions, and our words should bring glory to God by pointing others to God through Christ. Colossians 4, 5, and 6, live wisely among those who are not believers. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. In Matthew 5, Jesus tells us we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And then he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 1 Peter 3.15, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful manner. Second, Praise our glorious God. Listen for the response to God's salvation. So what, now what? In Ephesians 1, beginning uh, in verse 6. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles believed in Christ. And look at the response in verse 14. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. Back to the heart of God. 
revisit God's description of himself in Exodus 34, but back up and look in Exodus 33. What preceded this? Moses asked God to show him his glory. In Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's the scripture that was quoted in our Romans passage. The Lord makes his declaration of who he is. Look at Moses' response in verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And gentle and lowly, Ortland says this, The bent of God's heart is mercy. His glory is his goodness. His glory is his lowliness. Great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. That's from Psalm 138. Ortland and gentle and lowly. God does not reveal his glory as the Lord, the Lord, exacting and precise, or the Lord, the Lord, tolerant and overlooking, or the Lord, the Lord, disappointed and frustrated. His highest priority and deepest delight and first reaction, his heart is merciful and gracious. Our merciful and gracious, glorious Father. Romans 9 from this week. In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he's very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy, who were prepared in advance for glory. He shows me mercy. He shows you mercy. The result, the riches of his glory shine even brighter. The orderly said to Daniel, but I thought you were a Christian. Daniel later wrote this. I dropped on my knees and held the boy's hand in mine. In a few broken words, I confessed my sins and asked Christ to forgive me. I believed right there that he did forgive me. I then prayed and pleaded God's promises. When I arose from my knees, he was dead. A look of peace had come over his troubled face, and I cannot but believe that God, who used him to bring me to the Savior, used me to lead him to trust Christ's precious blood and find pardon. After the war, Daniel was promoted to the rank of major. He became a businessman. In 1873, he began preaching evangelical services for 25 years, revivals all through the U.S. He was also a hymn writer. One of the hymns he wrote, Showers of Blessing, Another hymn he wrote in 1883. It's actually a song about what he does not know nor understand. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Pray with me. Father, there is so much that I do not know nor understand, but I praise you that I know whom I have believed. Thank you for your grace and your Son in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.